Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Interstellar. In the year 2019, we saw a black hole for the first time. Unless you'd been watching Interstellar. We're the black hole. We did that too. <laughs> that one. Yeah, but... That one kind of looked, looked like some water. <laughs> yes, we are. We are trying to get into something a little, a little more like a real black hole for this one, of course. So, um, you know, this is a uh, today's movie. Interstellar is a a very smart movie. So we, we need to have some very smart people to uh, uh, help us help us through this gargantua black hole. So um, first off, this is Matt. This is Luke. And welcome to the Sci-Fi Sanctuary. There, I gave it. I gave it all to you. And we do have a guest today. We are joined by someone who is an astrophysicist, aerospace engineer, and now a scientific consultant. Uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald uh, went out to LA a few years ago and is now doing scientific consulting on. Is it's all of Star Trek? Is it? It's all of Star Trek. That's impressive. <laughs> yes, That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Always happy to geek out about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, this, of course, is not a Star Trek film, but it's about as Star Trek as uh, any sci-fi is going to get. I, I would argue this one's probably a little more Star Trek than Star Trek often is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll talk a little bit about how we came across this film. Um, I, I live in... Ueda, Japan. This is the first film I saw when I first got here permanently, and I, I said it. I said it with Inception too. Something I really like about Nolan films is he's pretty good at keeping uh, you completely blind as to what you're getting into until you enter the theater. Um, this is supposed to be our Nolan month, and we are hoping to see Tenant at the end of this month and get into that if you know theaters and things work out. But I have no clue what Tenet's going to be about, other than I know a few actors in it. So um, I was definitely blown away by this movie, uh, seeing it uh, for the first. It was the first movie I'd seen in a theater for about six months too, so that was kind of nice. Uh, Luke, how about you? So yeah, before this movie, I like I liked Nolan, but I wouldn't say I was a big Nolan fan. Um, I don't think I even managed to see it in theaters. I just when it came out on disc, I got a copy. And I sat in my apartment with the lights off in my chair and, like, absolutely adored it. Watched it again, I think, like, one or two nights later, or maybe again within a week of that. I really loved this film. Um, and, yeah, it was since then I've become super excited for the next Nolan. Um, but, yeah, because I, I liked Inception. I really liked The Prestige. Of course, I enjoyed The Batmans. And I'd heard he was making working on a space movie, so I was like, okay, that'll probably be cool. But then, yeah, I ended up really loving this film. And uh, Aaron, this is right in your wheelhouse. So uh, how, how did this one come through to you? Yeah, it's it was actually really interesting with this film because twenty it came out in 2014, and that was like a big sort of year in my life for completely switching careers because I'd worked in academia up until 2014, and I had left that spring and the research I was doing in academia was in gravitational waves and um, general relativity. And one of my colleagues was the science advisor on this film. So in terms of like our scientific background, people kind of knew that this was a big deal from that aspect. But then I kind of hadn't really thought much about it. But one of the things I started doing that uh, fall, I had moved back to the States. I'd been living in the UK prior to that. Um, I was just kind of getting settled in my new career. I was teaching part-time 
and uh, and I was teaching astronomy 101 when this came out it, just as an adjunct professor and my students would not stop talking about it and asking me about it <laughs> so that was it was like I had so many other things going on in my world that I wasn't going to the theater as much as I normally would uh, or the cinema but but that my students kind of were just like, just go watch it, please, please. I just want to talk about it. Can we just talk about it? Can we just do this for class all day is talk about interstellar? So, um, yeah, kind of through my teaching and my outreach, I had no option but to watch this film. <laughs> it does. Um, I know for me, uh, it's notorious on this podcast that it takes me forever to watch a film. Uh, so I tend not to get to special features. But, yeah, this one just is so awe-inspiring and uh, fascinating that I have actually watched the full-length documentary like two or three times for this one. I think I've shown my daughter the documentary, but not the movie itself. <laughs> oh, wow, that's awesome. Although <laughs> <laughs> um, I do need to put on stuff like this in contact for, for too long because uh, she's getting to the age to actually appreciate that uh, and where it's, you know, it's not animated anymore, right? So <laughs> we can do those films. Right, you gotta have that whole list. Yeah, my partner's kids are, are at that age, and so we have our whole list of movies. Contact is definitely on there. <laughs> so, good choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, it's uh, basically like 2001 Contact and Interstellar for sort of like the, the massive, hard sci-fi flicks. Nice. Um, would anyone like to add one to that list, just out of curiosity? <laughs> See, I knew you were going to ask that question when you said that list, and now I'm racking my brain and I can't think of one. <laughs> I mean, we did Silent Running, but it lacks some of the uh, majesty, I guess. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I showed that off to Hannah just yet. <laughs> that was pretty depressing. Well, I'm just talking for films that are generally, scientifically, sort of what, sort of accurate. <laughs> the Martian? I would throw The Martian on there. Yeah, yeah, more Damon, too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I will say uh, this. Godzilla the versus the Space Monster. Yes, yes, definitely that one. Um... Something that this movie's also done, I guess before I might have put this on the list, but since I've seen Interstellar, I've like almost completely forgotten that gravity exists. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I liked it fine, but if I want that sort of thing, Interstellar's the place for it. Yeah, that's fair. I mentioned not seeing Interstellar in the theater, but still loving it. Whereas I didn't see gravity in the theater and I got nothing from it. Yeah. <laughs> That felt like, oh, if I was in the theater, I'd love this. But sitting at home watching it on TV, it's just breathing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I mentioned this to Luke as something we will do in the future. But uh, this is a much smaller production. But uh, Europa Report stands out for me, at least I until the very end. the Europa Report. Thank you. That is such a good movie. I'm so sad I didn't think about that because I tell people to watch that movie all the time. No, I mentioned The Office to Luke. Luke and I worked together, and one of our co-workers also had the same reaction. Like, Europa Report, yes! So, uh, Luke, that's in, that's in our future sooner and later, I think. Okay, yes, put that one on the short list. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to just do a quick rundown of the story here, just to catch up the listener and us for a bit. And then after that, we will get a bit into the, the actors and the, the lighter thoughts. in the future and America is not great again. In fact, the whole world's food supply is being taken out by blight and the world's focus has shifted from science to emergency farming. Former NASA pilot Joseph Cooper is farming with his daughter Murph, son Tom, and his father-in-law. Unfortunately, this is a Christopher Nolan film and his wife is dead. Murph is a bright one and works out coordinates from messages sent by what seems to be a ghost in her room. 
The coordinates lead dad and daughter to the secret base of a now-covert NASA. It seems that 48 years ago, a strange artificial wormhole appeared near Saturn. Astronauts ventured through to find a new world to replace the dying Earth, but now a new crew must follow up on those previous missions. Plan A is to bring Earth's inhabitants to a new home. Plan B will be to try and colonize a planet with 5,000 human embryos. Coop is instantly enlisted to fly the ship as NASA no longer has trained pilots with experience. Murph is not particularly happy that her dad is going on a mission that he may never return from. Coop enters the Earth-orbiting spacecraft Endurance with three scientists, including Dr. Bran, the daughter of NASA's chief scientist, and red shirts Dr. Romley and Dr. Doyle. Also accompanying the crew are two ex-military robots, Tars and Case. After a two-year flight, the crew goes through the wormhole and begins to survey the planet's orbiting Gargantua, a black hole. The first stop is Miller's planet, which turns out to be a time-dilating water world. The mission is a disaster as Dr. Doyle is swept up by the waves and ship repairs cost the crew a few hours, which translates to 23 Earth years. Back on the ship, Dr. Romley has aged most of those 23 years and has made advances in understanding gravity, but now needs actual data from a black hole like Gargantua. The next planet to choose basically comes down to a coin flip, but Coop chooses man's planet, though Dr. Brand's choice would have been Edmund's planet, as Dr. Edmund is her old flame and the telemetry is promising. Man's Planet turns out to be another hellscape that comes complete with a psychotic Dr. Mann who blows up Dr. Romley and Case and then tries to hightail it back to the Endurance. Dr. Mann then blows himself up along with part of the Endurance in a poorly executed manual docking procedure. Coop and Dr. Brand manage to get back aboard a wildly spinning Endurance and try to use Gargantua as a gravity assist to reach Edmund's planet. Coop, along with Tars, jettisons themselves into Gargantua so that the Endurance may lose mass and make it to Edmund's planet. Back on Earth, a now adult Murph works for NASA and gets a deathbed confession from the elder Dr. Brandt that Plan A is actually impossible. She returns to her childhood bedroom despondent and so does Coop. Once Coop enters the black hole, he finds himself in a tesseract. A higher intelligence has constructed a 3D space of his daughter's bedroom stretched out through time. Coop sends his daughter messages as the ghost when she was a girl, as well as Tar's current telemetry from the black hole, to the adult scientist who can now solve the gravity equations needed to save the human race. Once his goal is complete, the Tesseract disintegrates and Coop is found 58 years later floating around Saturn. He is taken to Cooper Station, named after Dr. Cooper and her advances from the black hole data. Coop has a brief reunion with his now elderly daughter and then steals a ship and sets off for Edmund's planet, where Dr. Brand is now marooned and alone. Okay, so uh, let's talk just a little bit about the the actors and I guess the more the the fun facts here. Uh, where is this in the McConaissance? So I think this is the only Matthew McConaughey film I've ever watched. Really? No tasting confused? <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe I sat through one of his rom coms back in the day, but well, he made an interesting career spin by being a very promising actor in the 90s and then making completely ridiculous things for 10 years and then coming back and just making, like, Oscar-worthy stuff. Uh, I don't think he won anything for this, but I could have. <laughs> so uh, Jessica uh, Chastain as well. Uh, she has won Oscars. I don't think she got one for this, but sure, why not? Yeah, he, he is really good in this. Um, 
the scene that does it for me is, and I think everyone says the same thing, is when he gets all the messages after they come off the um, the water planet. Yeah, it's an awful lot and at it, once. <laughs> it's, it's just sold by his reaction. This one doesn't have quite as many ensemble folks, I think, at, as uh, Nolan films do. Like, the crew is not his regulars. We, we have Michael Caine, but... Um, that's about, and I, I, of course, Hathaway, I guess, now counts as, uh, and Hathaway now counts as a regular for him, too, so. Yeah, yeah, but that, yeah, that is pretty much it. We don't even have Cillian Murphy, which is. Surprising. Almost surprising, yeah, surprising <laughs> not to see him at this point. <laughs> I guess he could have been Doyle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Doyle's a weird one. I always look at the actor, and I'm sure I know him, but he's never who I think he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what actors are supposed to be, never who you think they are. Well, yeah, that's true, I guess. <laughs> um, the the child actors are surprisingly good in this. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, because it's like you barely think of that as being not... Um, it's kind of surprising. I looked at the mark where um, Jessica Chastain actually shows up, and it's just, so, uh, just short of halfway through the entire film when she makes her first appearance on screen. But, it yeah, it feels like that is the same character you're watching throughout the whole film. And that definitely works at the end, too, where he's, like, basically interacting with her at two separate times at the same time. It's like, yes, this is the same person. I think she's got a similar shirt on, too. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that's very weird. So, I mean, obviously, we've got the shock appearance of Matt Damon partway through. But also, the son is played by Casey Affleck. Oh, Yeah. So it's like we've got a Damon and not quite the Affleck we're used to seeing him with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that, like I said, I came into this one very uh, spoiler-free and definitely did not see Matt Damon coming until he, he until Damon, until he did. <laughs> they, I mean, they yeah. did a great job of keeping that under wraps. I think that surprised everyone and did for a long time. It was pretty cool. But I also, what I like about it is, although they do do it as, like, a surprise reveal, they don't overdo it as, like, ba-ba-ba, here's a famous actor. He just appears, and he's just a character, and they just let it happen. Whereas a lot of times when films try and make the twist is that this actor is in the film, it doesn't really work, because, of course, that's not a twist for the characters. So they don't really try and do that here. Yeah, he comes out of cryo-sleep, and there's just a brief, is that Matt Damon? And then he's, you know, neck cut, he's uh, got the blank, and oh, yes it is. <laughs> well, like, I, at this point, I hadn't seen Matt Damon in a film for a little while, he's looking a little older, and I was like, is that Matt Damon? Is it his brother? I'm not sure. <laughs> I guess the thing with a uh, Nolan film is, uh, is there any bad acting in here? I, I did call the uh, the two male doctors red shirts, but it's not, because that's because they didn't have a whole lot to do. Um, I, I guess Dr. Romley had 23 years to hang out and solve equations, which was helpful, but... <laughs> yeah, and his, scene, his scenes when they come out and he's aged are actually really good. Uh, Aaron, what would you do with 23 years to, to on an on a empty spaceship? Oh, gosh, I feel like I'm living that now. <laughs> I don't think I'd last that long. <laughs> it's crazy. It's a neat twist, though. I mean, I... I I really like that they did the gravitational time dilation stuff. I think that's a fabulous use of it in science fiction. And it's used so emotionally here. I mean, a lot of films it would just be like a thing or it'd be played not not for last, but almost like, oh, wow, it's the distant future. This is so weird where this movie really gets into the uh, emotional devastation of that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, too, uh, particularly when they're getting the videos and realizing how long time has passed. It's uh, it's cool. It's good. It's a great use of like actual science in science fiction. I feel like this film kind of does for like science fiction what The Godfather does for a crime movie, where there is a whole bunch of science stuff, but it doesn't really want you to look at that. It wants you to look at the people. Yeah, it doesn't overshadow it. It's not saying, hey, here's all the interesting science that we did for this movie. Um, it's very story driven, which is it's not an easy balance to reach. No, I remember there were a few um, sort of this was, that movie actually got somewhat mixed reviews when it came out. Um, now I think it is pretty well considered a classic a few years later. But I do remember some of the first reviews calling it like too emotional, not like the just icy science of two thousand one and the emotion ruins the movie. But I mean, we're, we're people, so emotion, you know, balancing yeah. the two is very important. 
I do think, though, that the, some of that was the expectation management of it because the, you know, and you mentioned this too, the, the standard for Nolan is that you go into movies not really knowing what you're going to watch. And, uh, but they did do a lot of promotion for this film around the science advising of it. You know, I remember these articles that were coming out beforehand about Kip Thorne being the science advisor and how this was the most perfectly accurately imaged black hole that we had ever achieved um, because they had, <laughs> you gave Kip Thorne the budget of a Hollywood film and and they were able to build a um, an image of a black hole. And so I think all of that promotion around that and saying, hey, this is like, we've actually been able to simulate a black hole, which we haven't done before, um, gave the expectation that it would be a heavier sci-fi, like a heavier science film than it ended up being. And so that's why I think the the reviews ended up the way they were, in my opinion. Didn't the work on this film actually result in a couple of like peer-reviewed papers? Oh, yeah. And it really was because, you know, the it was purely the budget that they said we want a really accurate black hole. And the scientists that they went to for it were like, yeah, we do too. We've wanted one for a long time, but that <laughs> takes a lot of money and computing power that we don't necessarily have. And, um, but they had the budget for it. So it was very much like a uh, quid pro quo, very happily, you know, it's, uh, it's really cool. Just before we get off of actors and characters Sorry. entirely. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. I just, I really want to mention the two best characters in this film. Tars and Case. Oh, yeah. Uh, I forgot to look up who voiced them. Can you double down uh, so on that? So Tars is Bill Irwin. Um, I don't know what else he's done. Let's have a little look-see. Uh, uh, yeah, it looks like he's mostly just done quite minor roles and TV roles. And then Case is not showing up because my phone is very slow. <laughs> Josh Stewart, which is a name I feel like I recognize, but I don't know why. I just asked you, kind of assuming that we were going to have like name actors voicing them because it feels like <laughs> you know, that they're very nope, good performances. Yeah, they both seem to be just minor character actor voice guys. Okay, they should get some more voice roles. <laughs> but yeah, I really enjoy those robots design-wise and the sass. Yeah, the, I love the, uh, the not the ratings, the percentages. Yeah, they're turning yeah, humor yeah, down yeah. to 60%. That's great. <laughs> I love how much character they managed to put into a square. Right. Uh, is it too optimistic? We had a few years ago, what was it? Google tried to make their own AI, which went racist within 24 hours or something. I think that was Microsoft. Yeah, uh, they basically gave it the internet and then it ended up being like a <laughs> super Nazi. <laughs> it's it pretty spectacular. So um, I guess Case and Tars are probably cut off from the internet then. <laughs> Don't make that mistake but, again. But I love when sci-fi is able to do that, though, and I think they did that effectively here. You know, other highlights are obviously 2001's and um, and Moon, too, if you uh, have watched or reviewed Moon. Um, that's a great sci- That's another really good sci-fi, actually. But it's got a great AI character in it. That That's hard to do. It's hard to pull off. Do you remember who voiced that character? <laughs> I do. I mean, I'm terrible with names. I'm legacy for like n being awful with names, but I know it's a big name. No, I, I love Moon, uh, and it is one we'll get to. Uh, David Bowie's son directed it, but uh, yeah, it's the the voice is Kevin Spacey. <laughs> that was it, Kevin Spacey. Yeah, that was it. But even just like the way that they, because it obviously is calling back Hal, um, and and they were able to do it and still make it a unique character. So. But yeah, I mean, screw Kevin Spacey. But. No, obviously when the <laughs> yeah. when the movie came out, it wasn't a deal. But thinking about it now, it's like ooh. But yeah, it, yeah. it's it's one we will want to talk about. I do like that movie quite well. Um, so uh, Luke, where did was that the end of your your actor rate? Oh, and just I always forget. Topher Grace is in this movie. He's he's the tag along for um, yeah. Doctor Cooper. But it, it's it's such a minor role, and I'm always surprised they got like a fairly well known little character actor guy in for that role he was he did maybe after venom he had to take what he could get <laughs> yeah well yeah that, that i think about it he's done i've seen him in venom predators and this so <laughs> <laughs> um and then timothy chalamet played the young kid the young boy and now he's done a lot of stuff 
That was kind of one of his first ones. Um, oh, yeah, I guess in six years, a kid that age can grow up. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's in he's in Little Women, Lady Bird, uh, The King. Um, you know, he's starting to, to really grow. Spread his wings and fly. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, we definitely have to get a little bit into the science of this, and we definitely have the person to ask today. So if I could ask you to put on a bit of the, the science advisor shoes, uh, what, what does this film do best? <laughs> I mean, we, talked about the, we talked about the black hole a little. That's definitely a cool one. But I, I guess maybe details that uh, someone with, who hasn't gone through academia might not spot as easily. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, so the things that I really, really like were... Um, like I said, imaging the black hole. I, I can't I can't understate overstate. I can't overstate how uh, cool that was as a general relativity person because we live in it's theoretical astrophysics. The most of the stuff we do is reading equations and trying to image them. But space is three dimensional and space time is four dimensional. So at best, we usually have things like trampolines and, you know, bowling balls and weights to condense our, uh, our, our universe down. So we can look at these really complicated equations in some way that's intuitive. And so taking the idea of a black hole and actually accurately imaging that that was a really really big deal and that was really cool because prior to interstellar um the most that we'd ever been able to image black holes was from the x-ray heat that was coming off of stuff as it was falling in so before it had crossed the event horizon it was still heating up there's a lot of friction um and so we would get these x-ray signals but we weren't actually able to see the black hole itself. And then since this movie came out, I mean, we've detected black holes colliding with gravitational waves. And we, I mean, we've got almost dozens of, of examples of that now. And as mentioned at the top of this, you know, we imaged the black hole in 2019 and actually saw the picture of the hole itself. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things that, as a scientist, I will get stupidly geeky about and kind of leave everyone else thinking, like, why is this so... Like, it's a black hole, but haven't we seen them before? And it's like, no, we haven't. We use this term all the time, but we only see, like, these indirect effects of black holes. And so getting something that was so mathematically accurate, um, being able to see it in a three-dimensional space, I think, was a big deal as well. Um, again, just because our little dinky academic computers just can't process that the level of detail that's needed for that kind of imaging. So the black hole images are like the number one thing. And then I mentioned this a little bit um, when I <laughs> inadvertently created an entire tangent for, for all of us. Um, but the, the gravitational time dilation, I really, really love, um, both as a storytelling device and just... Uh, an example of, of actual science and being used in a way that creates excellent story without making it about the science. Those are those are the big highlights for me. And, and don't worry about tangents. When we talked about Metropolis, somehow we started talking about Azerbaijan. So <laughs> <laughs> Things happen. <laughs> yes, these things happen. Um, so the black hole is great for the 3D imaging. I guess one thing with uh, theoretical astrophysics is none of us... Uh, we talked about the dinky computers and our brains are dinky enough. They can't, they can never actually conceptualize a fourth, four dimensional space. Yeah, we just can't. <laughs> it's just so hard. We, because we don't live in that space and that's, that's the tricky thing. Um, you know, they have some cool throwaway examples like using a tesseract, um, and then using a wormhole, both as connecting two points in space as well as time, um, is always cool and something that we see in science fiction, but it's usually like science fiction will choose to either use black holes or wormholes as connecting two points in space or as connecting two points in time. And very rarely do they use them interchangeably, um, even though they do 
theoretically connect points in space and time. Um, so that that's kind of cool to see as well. They have the the showing of the paper, uh, like you mentioned, showing how a wormhole functions, which was actually the second time I think I saw it on film. While it's nowhere near as good a movie, I think they had the same explanation in Event Horizon. They did, yes. Event Horizon, while it has deeply scarred me, I, um, I do like the... Because they basically would build like an artificial wormhole-type jump drive was basically what they were doing, what they, their ship was using, and then it punched a wormhole through, and bad, scary things happened. <laughs> no, I have, a, I have a friend who will still jump behind the couch when he sees Sam Neill's face because of that movie. Valid. I don't disagree with that at all. <laughs> And I'm going to bring him onto the, this podcast for that movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> One thing I like about how you're saying, of course, we can't conceptualize a 4D space, is how in this film, the beings, they couldn't conceptualize going back to a 3D space. And like that's why they needed Coop to do it for them, which I thought was a cute idea. Right, that is clever. Yeah, I like that a lot. Because it is, I mean, it's it's really hard for us. When I when I use examples like, you know, that bowling ball on the trampoline to show how mass warps space-time, um, even that's condensed down to really two dimensions. And, you know, I'd have students who just hated that and just be like, but what's under the trampoline? And and it's because, you know, we're, we're trying to condense these dimensions down. It's really hard for us. Um, and, yeah, another great, great use. Um, so 2001 is the, for the time the science is relatively on target until we go through the Stargate and everything breaks loose. I see in this movie sort of the Tesseract being that space. Uh, I, how, how does that compare to, you know, legit science? Is, are we seeing something reasonable or just wild speculation? Well, the cool thing with the Tesseract that I like, we... They, we throw that word around in science fiction a lot. You know, we see it in Avengers, we see a Tesseract in Doctor Who, and um, but a Tesseract is an actual thing. It's one of these words that sounds very science fiction-y because we've seen them a lot, but it, it's an actual thing. And it's basically increasing in dimensions for um, cubes. You know, that as you build up your dimensions, you start with a line, then you draw a square, that's your two-dimensional square, and then you have a cube that's a three-dimensional one, and then a tesseract is four dimensions. And because our, our universe is four-dimensional, with space and then time being a fourth dimension, when you bring a tesseract into it, that sort of implies very easily that you have some control over this fourth dimension of time that we, we don't have here. And, you know, as mentioned, we can't really conceptualize um, so making that sort of key, that unlocking aspect, be a tesseract, I'm I'm super about. And the aliens in this were five dimension. They, right, they lived in a five dimensional space in the same way we live in a four dimensional space. I think they were just one dimension greater than us, so they couldn't conceptualize one down from theirs. Um, but it's uh, it's cool. I love using a tesseract. I think those are great. Yeah, I got to give a shout out to A Wrinkle in Time because I, you know, I read about Tesseract in yeah. the book when I was 10 years old. So once it started showing up, you know, I know this one seems legit and Avengers is just using the word. I, I kind of got that straight up because I had first been exposed quite young. That's awesome. Yeah, I forgot about Wrinkle in Time. The way Wrinkle in Time describes space time and time is brilliant. Yeah. Well, my mom is a math teacher and my dad is a physicist, so like... As a kid, we read, like, Flatland, and I'm pretty sure I heard the word Tesseract from them. But I think, yeah, nice. I think in, in Avengers, they were just embarrassed about saying Cosmic Cube out loud. <laughs> right. I want to say Cosmic Cube all the time. What's wrong with them? Rapidly coming along. Party season of the sun. We're coming, crashing through your paper door. But rather watch the face of God's bus gold. Reality needs a mask. On webs getting spun on a tower of sun. Was never a joiner, nor a cog in the machine. Yet was rather a scribe. A firefly in the one sun tribe. It was never a joiner. 
Okay, we've been we've been nice and positive, but we're going to be a bit of a negative Nancy and ask about the things that don't work quite as well in this. I know with uh, Gravity, for example, Neil deGrasse Tyson had like an 87-point list of things that didn't quite work at this film. Uh, maybe it's less noticeable in, in Interstellar, but what are a few of those things? Yeah, I mean, what they do great in Interstellar is they use these scientific concepts and then they ex make them very extreme for the point of the story um one i you know personally i'm a big sci-fi fan it's very easy for me to kind of get lost in a story and very rarely do i get pulled out and but the easiest way for me to get pulled out of a story is when some a movie is being very scientific and accurate and then they do kind of one thing that makes me pause and for me in this one it was the the black hole time dilation planet as much as i will be effusive about how great it was to use that as a storytelling device um the extreme time dilation that occurred that was what half an hour to seven years or something like that um was bonkers because essentially like the way black holes work is you have these green yellow and red zones and a green zone you just happily keep orbiting i think a lot of us have this misconception that black holes are like massive hoovers that are going around vacuuming up space and they're not they're just really deep deep gravity wells and for example if our sun just turned into a black hole we would have other problems, but our planet would just keep orbiting it normally if it had its same mass and, and everything. Um, and so there's that green zone that we would happily be in if our sun was instead a black hole where you just orbit like normal. Um, then you have those yellow zones and the yellow zones are this area where it's like it's a little bit deeper so it requires a little bit more fuel to stay in orbit like if you aren't using fuel you will eventually fall in um, but you're starting to you know fall towards it but you can still get out and then the red zone is kind of that point where you're nearing that event horizon and just physics is starting to say no you know the event horizon is that limit where light can't escape where the uh, uh, escape velocity is the speed of light but there's that area out there where any object that has mass isn't going to be able to even get to the speed of light and so you want to there's going to be an area where your ship won't get out of it and for a time dilation of a half hour to seven years you're so deep in this red zone of the black hole like you're never ever ever crawling out of that one again <laughs> but again this is one of those perfect examples of you sacrificing the science for the sake of the story it doesn't it's it's never going to be as impactful if they use a more reasonable, you know, few days, for example. That's not going to have any impact and have no emotional beat for the characters. And so making this really extreme time dilation, we'll, we'll let that slide. But that was the one time when they said, oh, it's maybe it was 10 minutes. It was either 10 minutes or half an hour for seven years. I was like, no, that's bonkers. <laughs> so that and, um, kind of pulled me out a little bit. Yeah, for the for the characters too. It it takes until they're on the planet to realize. Wait a minute, Doctor Miller has only been here for about thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah, like you, <laughs> exactly. You that's probably something that you would want to calculate first. And I think that that's probably the other thing. And and you know, I am not. A negative person when it comes to science fiction. I just use all these as fun teaching moments. Um, but, you know, I'm not gonna dunk on it completely, but you know, I'll be honest that there are these things where, you know, my partner uh, was in the Marines, and so he'll watch how military behaves in science fiction and he will just, you know, throw his arms up and be like, why are you allowing the pilot to go on the security mission? You know, all that stuff. And that's kind of how I feel with some of this stuff where I'm like, why wouldn't you calculate the gravitational time dilation? Like that's something that's not difficult to calculate. And kind of the same thing with the overall plot of this big gravity equation to save humanity. It was not and maybe it's just because it's been a while since I've seen it. So correct me if I just have this wrong in my brain. But all they had to do was figure out how to get humanity and enough stuff into space. Like, and so their answer to doing that was to have this like gravity equation where they can manipulate gravity such that they're able to get all this stuff up here. And I'm like, if you're 
spending generations trying to figure out this equation and you're not getting anywhere, just start launching stuff into space. <laughs> like, um, and I know that there's all these overarching things of like how much fuel we have and all this, but I was like, you're making this problem a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Um, but yeah, that's just me. <laughs> I, I think I think in filmmaking terms, the uh, gravity equation is referred to as a MacGuffin. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> accurate. <laughs> but uh, you just you go with it or you don't because it's not. I, I you see all the math on the board, so I, I you know, for me, I I, don't, I just don't know the math. But uh, the, I guess the thing for me, uh, and maybe there's a good explanation other than wizards did it or future, you know, evolved w wizards did it. Um, the wormhole and the and gargantua are two separate things, and Coop is orbiting Saturn after going through the Tesseract. Yeah, but I mean, they were both put there by the same same forces, right? So yeah, yeah. that doesn't does feel like of, too much of a leap for me. But you do have to kind of go with the wizard did it in the end. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. It kind of gives you a little bit of pause. Um, and yeah, I mean, the equations that they show are all general relativity equations. Um, but it's one of those, it all is just, theor it's theoretical. And it's like, we can do the math. It's just up to the engineers to figure out how to do it. I've done the math. Over to you guys. That's the harder <laughs> part. And I think, you know, because we've done the math to figure out how warp drive works and all this stuff. But it's actually getting energy sources and getting enough power to result in that. I think that's, that's where I know their hang-up would be. In terms of manipulating gravity, it's not that the math isn't going to let it work. It's that we need enough power and energy to warp space-time in such a way. But again, that's that's like where you take a step back and you're like, okay, let's maybe 0.5% of people are going to pick up and be mildly annoyed by that, so we'll let it go. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a guy who I think was dumped by his university girlfriend because she tried to teach me calculus and I didn't understand it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm 41 now. It was quite a while ago. <laughs> and yeah, it sounds you like you're over it, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did like about the uh, the Gravity Planet stuff was how they pointed out that for the characters, like the theory was one thing, but it was experiencing it was like something entirely different. And I think that sort of that's the case with all of this wild space sci-fi stuff. It is very easy to think about it, but I'm sure actually, you know, strapping yourself to a rocket and launching yourself off the Earth is very different when you actually experience it to when you just think about it. Well, that's why I see Coop explaining to his 10-year-old daughter what's going to happen, and she's flipping out because she understands it better, right? Where he's just, yeah, yeah I'm, just, I'm doing this thing. But after he goes through the experience, he's, like, devastated by it. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think we see that, and it's more of a subtle thing that science fiction stories use because it's interesting. I mean, they talk about that observer effect with astronauts, you know, once they get up to space and are actually literally falling around the Earth, staring back at this planet that we all live on, that it does something to your brain. And and you can't describe it and you can't relate to it until you actually experience it. Yeah, there's a quote I really like, which I think was Buzz Aldrin, but I could be wrong, um, where he said he could hold up his thumb and cover the Earth, but it didn't make him feel big. It made him feel very, very small. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. science fiction films that we've watched which I'm sure don't hold up in that sense but which I've still had a great time watching. Mm -hmm. 
2000 still sounds more futuristic to me than 2020 does. So this film, for as much as it does visually and scientifically, I feel like this film was huge in terms of how it did music. This was like the third time Hans Zimmer and Chris Nolan reinvented film music. Yeah, um, that in great part, I think it's because of all the organ stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, they, they, they talked a lot about how they were like, we're going for organs this time and it's going to be different to what you're used to hearing. There's actually a Saint-Saëns, I think I'm saying his name right, but a, a classical, real, really romantic composer, but he had one of his third symphony is the Organ Symphony. And I actually listened to it last week, and I realized whenever I see Organ Symphony, this is the music that comes to mind from this movie, not, not his symphony. <laughs> right. Because it feels very symphonic and just massive and, you know, like a super massive black hole. But yeah, it's a very... It's really emotional music, and it it drives home the way that this feels like a very emotional film, more than like a dry scientific film. And yeah, I, the, of course, the music is fantastic, but they almost could have just like thrown in like Bach organ and it would work just as well. <laughs> Maybe, but that music for the docking scene is like some of the best music in any film. Oh yeah, I'm not besmirching the music at all. It's just it's uh, I'm saying it you know it stands up nicely to like you know, a Bach organ chorale or something. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's one scene, this is a movie, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the, the Soviet Solaris, uh, the Tarkovsky one. It has, that is... No, you've told me about it many times, but I've not properly okay, seen it. Okay, there's a scene before the astronaut leaves the planet. It's like really long. It's like three or four minutes. It's just him sitting, watching like leaves, uh, reeds blowing in the wind with like Bach organ piece playing. So to me, I felt like that, I mean, Nolan probably knows about it. I wonder if that influenced his uh, aesthetic for this film and sort of the sound he wanted, and, and Zimmer, too, I, I guess. Um, I, I want to tell my story of... So the, the famous track from this one is, is listed on the soundtrack as No Time for Caution, and it's just the really exciting music when he's trying to dump the ship at the yeah, end. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but so um, our friend and colleague Rob is also a big fan of this film. And we were talking about it. And then so one time he was driving me home after we'd been somewhere. I can't remember where. And he had this soundtrack playing on his car. And we got to my apartment and we've got my apartment building has a very small like parking area. And for some reason, instead of just dropping me off at the road, he decided to try and reverse into there. And so as he's doing like really tricky, minute reversing motions, we realized that that music had started playing. <laughs> that, that probably made it harder than it should have been. Yeah, well, he's trying to squeeze himself into this little tiny parking spot, and it's like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but like, it was it was like a good thirty seconds before we both realised what was happening, and then we sort of pissed ourselves for a sec. He doesn't ha does he have the reverse camera? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that adds to you get the little the little uh, quote yeah. film aspect as well. <laughs> I remember when I used to work in a supermarket and if we got deliveries, you'd stand at like the big back door, which is like the exact size as the back of the truck and the truck would just reverse up to you and you could walk straight in. And I'd always wanted to just film one of the trucks slowly reversing and put this soundtrack over it. <laughs> hey, still do that. Make a, be a YouTube sensation. 
Maybe. I think I probably missed the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Missed the zeitgeist on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes wait for the nostalgia wave to hit. But uh, you had one more point I think you wanted to get to, or was that the music? I just, just visual design. Um, one thing which Nolan did very deliberately and which really worked, he tried to mostly shoot the space stuff the same way I, the camera on a spaceship would shoot it. So it's like a very tight to the ship camera. And with, uh, there, yeah, they tap no sound in space in this film, so that's a plus. Yeah. I mean, they got the sound track. I mean, you we don't do, need we the do get space. long shots where you can see the whole spaceship. But for the most part, it's those real tight. The camera is actually on the ship. The ship is very cool. I, I definitely like the shuttles. Um, but the, the Endurance itself, it's not my favorite sci-fi ship. I, I guess it's functional, and that's cool. It's not my it. favorite, but it, it is at least like a very unique silhouette, right? Yes. Yeah, I like it. I mean, yeah, it's not my favorite, but I would probably buy a model of it. Yeah, I did. In the beginning of the movie, they had the uh, diecast uh, space shuttle model, which I remembered having as a child and is probably still on the shelf yeah, in my parents' house in the same spot. Uh, I'll link you to a dumb YouTube video I made in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just one last thing on this film is a piece of criticism which I've seen bandied around. Which feels like I should agree with it, but I really don't because I just love this film. But um, this film is, I'm right because I have kids, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like my least favorite attitude in the real world, but for some yeah. reason it doesn't bother me here. Well, he's under <laughs> a lot more pressure too to do that. So, well, he's wrong well, though. I feel like it's... He's wrong. I mean, he know he sees his mistakes in the end, right? But his other thing is just that he he doesn't see like raising those sperm on an alien planet as being the same thing as actually saving the humans who are currently alive. Right. And I think that is a valid thought, right? Well, yeah, but I'm like... It's kind of... Re it's relevant to today, right? Like, a lot of people are willing to sacrifice a lot of lives to say have, like, some theoretical herd immunity or economic gain... I'm like, no, you've just got to think about the actual human lives in front of you. <laughs> well, you take, you got to take your personal responsibility. And if it involves taking those steps, that's your personal responsibility, you know? And then that builds up to societal responsibility. Yeah. I, but I, yeah. And that, uh, Matt Damon makes that little point about the Dr. Man. I don't know. He's just Matt Damon to me. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Damon. <laughs> Which is funny because, like, Cooper is Cooper because I don't really know Matthew, Matthew McConaughey. But Matt Damon is just Matt Damon. Okay. Um, it actually so he makes my that mind. point. You don't know McConaughey that well, but whatever. <laughs> he makes that point of you don't really. Human beings are not designed to care about more than like a small number of people, the people that you can see in front of you, and it's very hard to care about like the world at large. Right. So you care for yourself and make decisions as well as you can, but you don't make excuses like you know I can yeah. do it anyway. That's that's the point of personal responsibility. <laughs> you don't just do it anyway. You know you you. Use your compass to do what, you know, it will benefit yourself and the people around you and that will benefit the people around them and so on. Yeah, but he's he's so good in that villain role of like the whole time he's just going on and on and on trying to justify it to himself and everyone else. Right. <laughs> and like everyone would rather he just shut up and did what you needed to do. Well, he was once a great man that's now completely yeah. psychotic. But uh, it really reminds me of a scene in uh, Breaking Bad. Um, which I won't, I won't like name any characters in case it spoils it for someone who hasn't seen it. But um, the main character kills someone, and right, the guy's like there dying, and Walt's trying to justify what he's just done to this guy he's killed, <laughs> and he's just like, for once in your life, we shut up. <laughs> and that's what it felt like. Like Cooper's sat like lying there dying, and Matt Damon's trying to make him forgive him. Yeah, I'm doing doing this for you, man. <laughs> I mean, it basically makes that argument. Very satisfying when he exploded. And then, I, I, can, I can just say my line, you don't need to reply to it. <laughs> there are two great moments in this film where it just cuts the sound. Um, at the end of when he's watching the videos, the music just stops. And the bit where Matt Damon's like midway for a speech and he gets blown out the, blown out the airlock. Those are both really like effective, unexpected stops. I like that.
don't need no rules in this town of Spartacus. We have the numbers, concentrate power in us. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're wrapping up a little bit. Um, as far as does, does this feel, movie stand the test of time, I don't think we have any dissenters here, unless, you know, future science makes it all seem silly, but then the emotional content still comes through nicely. Yeah, there are plenty of old science fiction films that we've watched, which I'm sure don't hold up in that sense, but which I've still had a great time watching. Yeah, like with 2001, some of it's a little wonky now, but at the time it was fine, so you can't really fault it. And I, I think this film's... <laughs> the biggest fault that 2001 has is calling it 2001. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but th isn't it funny? We still, we can say 2001, it still sounds like the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, well, 2000 still sounds more futuristic to me than 2020 does. <laughs> uh, 2020 sounds like an eye chart. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, this is this. I, I think we can call this one of those sort of tent pole films and hang our hat on it if we want to. Um, anyway, yeah, we. I think we've. This podcast has come out sounding quite a bit more intelligent today, and it's uh, not because of Luke and myself. So, <laughs> uh, Doctor Aaron, can you tell them where they can, uh, you know, get into some of uh, your material? No worries. I'm really happy to have this discussion. This has been fun for me. Um, yeah, you can find me online. I'm mostly interacting on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Mack. It's D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. That's also my handle on Twitch and DrAaronMack.com, uh, where you can find links to all of my content. And you can also search for Aaron McDonald on YouTube, where I've got recordings of my Twitch streams and various interviews and I do sci-fi episode clubs and all this fun stuff. So um, thanks again for having me. And this was really fun. No, no, I'm sure there's non-disclosure statements and things. So I'll just keep a very specific question. Are we going to see a lot more gravitational waves in Trek now? <laughs> you know, at least if you do, you know who to blame. Um, but I will say, you know, Lower Decks is coming out on August 6th. And I didn't work on the first season, but I've, I've seen it. I'm helping out with season two, and I'm very excited for this. So I, um, I hope everyone enjoys it and gets to see it. It'll be great. Is it basically Lower Decks, Discovery 3, Picard 2? Is that what we're looking at now for... What we'll be watching. I have no, I have no insight into the release schedule for this. I'm usually so far early in like the development and conceptual process that uh, by the time it's airing, I'm, I haven't thought about it in a while. That's, but I'm very excited. That's cool. I think just because I don't think I pinned down that lower dex date yet. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, they announced it last week. I'm really, really excited. And um, if you want to hear on other topics, science is uh, probably more. Fantastic. But Pokemon are fun too. So Luke, where where do you do that? Uh, yeah, you could see now you're making me sound like a real child after Eric gets to promote <laughs> her really cool stuff. But your show's fun. <laughs> you have a fun show, we gotta talk about it. Yep, you can listen to my Pokemon podcast. That's on Twitter at Luke Loves PKMN. It's also on Facebook in the same place. And you can just search on your podcasting app of choice, Luke Loves Pokemon. And during this podcast, you will have heard some music. And if you like that music, what you just done heard, that is made by Matt. And you can find Matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. Okay, uh, for this podcast, I'm going to try and spit out the letters again. M-L-S-F-S pod. I think I got yes. it. Okay, I can't, I can't spell it, sad. <laughs> right, yeah, you, need, you need to say, like, at Twitter and Facebook. You can't just shout letters. <laughs> <laughs> it's a work in progress. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Dr. Eric McDonald, thank you very much for joining us today in our, our little Mickey Mouse operation of a podcast. <laughs> Thanks, guys. This is a blast. <laughs> and, Luke, how about for our dear listeners? What should they do? Um, oh, I, I put you on the spot. One. I put you on yeah, the spot. Yeah, I forgot that I'm not... I forgot. I keep forgetting that I've tried to stop using the horrible one that I used to use. <laughs> <laughs> Spherical wormhole? Get, go through the... I don't know. Sorry. That's why I don't do it. Um. Yep. So you, the listeners at home, can please jump in a black hole. There we go.
next week. Inception. Inception.